So uh, how was your week there, um, Michael? Very busy as usual, Luke. This week I actually did do a couple of things that were very resource intensive. We had our food awards in both Sydney and Melbourne. Very so, nice. I don't know, we're up to about nine or ten food awards now. Uh, so, and it's been a bit of the impetus for today's guest, who yeah. uh, is Josh Nyland, uh, who's done a fantastic job over the last 10 to 12 years. Can't quite put a measure on how old he is. I reckon he can't be 30 as yet, but um, to achieve what he's achieved is quite amazing. So he's picked up both our uh, top awards of Restaurant of the Year and Chef of the Year, and also that of Gourmet Traveller. So, yeah, uh, pretty exciting to get him on. What about yourself? Oh, mate, my week has been pretty hectic, actually. Uh, just doing pretty standard stuff. Nothing uh, exciting to report, really, but, um, mate, just busy in recruitment at the moment, so trying to keep the head above water. But, uh, mate, very much, very looking forward to um, to Josh today. It was a great night on Monday night at the Time Out Food Awards. Um, really good night and really good to see him take out the, the Chef of the Year and Restaurant of the Year. You know, it's pretty impressive to see two of those go to the, to the same uh, business or operation. So, mate, this chat's going to be really good. Let's start. Done. Josh, welcome to the Back of House podcast Thank here you. from the Welcome Hotel in Roselle. Tasty lunch. Yeah. <laughs> Just well, smashed a couple of short ribs. It's delicious. Yeah, I think the chef downstairs felt the pressure. Of being, uh, <laughs> yeah, probably. Oh, he's done a good job. Man whose reputation now precedes him, but uh, welcome. It's good to have you on. Thank you. Um, I'm going to just jump straight in, and uh, the thing that um, I found reading your bio was, I just want to ask you about, is like the, I guess, you growing up, uh, yep. and you talked about East Maitland a little bit, like, yep. but um, what was that like? And yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I was pretty lucky as a kid. I um, My mum and dad uh, ran their own business out of the back of the house. Um, so dad was an accountant for, I think, close to 28 years, probably even longer. Sorry, dad. But um, he, <laughs> um, yeah, so he, he had a tax agency and accountancy business at the back of the house. So basically I grew up with mum and dad always in the house. So you saw dad eating his breakfast, you saw dad eating his dinner. And, that, and you know, mum as well. And mum would pick us up from school. Um, you know, it was nice to have them both around. And, you know, being a loving family that, you know, asked you how your day was and all that sort of stuff. Like, things that people sometimes take for granted. And I was spoiled to have that. And I had a... I have an older sister who's two years older than I am, um, who, you know, like me... We played a lot of sport, like we did what we wanted to do, went on excursions at school. Um, yeah, so that was nice. And East Maitland was a good little part of the world because, you know, close to where we went to primary school and then where we went to high school. So, you know, I could ride my push bike to school. I could go see my mates around the corner. Um, the local shops were close by. We could, yeah, it was, it was just a nice place. The city wasn't anywhere near it so it wasn't that high intensity mm. lots of people around you had your own little circle so yeah and in terms of the inspiration for cooking was it mum dad yourself like talk us through what kind of got you yeah I mean this is probably opening up a huge can of worms but I had cancer as a kid uh, a couple of days after my eighth birthday I was diagnosed with a Wilms tumour um, and then from there I suppose rehabilitating after that Food was involved, obviously. Food's a source of comfort and nourishment and makes you feel good. And, you know, even if it's not the right foods, it makes you feel good. So, mm. you know, Macca's on the way home from getting chemotherapy was yeah. a nice thing to do with mum, as much as it was bad for me, <laughs> yeah. I suppose. Um, it was just a nice 
little routine that mum and I kind of had because, you know, it literally sucks the life out of you. <laughs> and so there has to be some kind of enjoyable moments through the week. And so food offered that enjoyment. So then through that, you know, you pick up the occasional cooking magazine because they're bright and beautiful and, you know, things in there were interesting. Shannon Bennett at the time had opened Vue Monde and it was exciting to see somebody putting popcorn with a duck leg, like stupid stuff like that now. Yeah. But it was um, there were certain things that I would just be like, oh, wow, that's really cool. Um, and I'd want to try cooking things at home because there was that sense of pleasure being able to feed people and watch them eat your food and say, oh, that's really yummy. Or, you know, it's... Um, so it kind of came born out of that. And there was a bit of time at home, obviously not being at school, for part of the time being sick where you'd watch Huey and you'd watch Aristos and you'd watch, you know, Jeff Chance and... The classic. You know. do, you, do you remember Peter Russell Clark? I'm going to ask every guest. No. Yes, no. Oh, yeah. Don't ask every guest. No, I won't forget. Yeah, no, I remember it. Terrible. Yeah. Peter G'day, Russell G'day, Clark. Anyway, it was yeah, right. the pre, all the old pre, people pre MasterChef when it was like, <laughs> you know, Jamie when he was really, really young and like yeah. Nigella when she was really young and like just, you know, even, yeah, the Aussie ones like Huey wiping a tea towel like all over your plate and then wiping his forehead with it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, really, you know, and watching that with my granddad as well and go, he's a grub and don't ever do that if you ever be a chef. And so, so that you know, was eight, when you were eight, is that when, yeah, that's when mean, it started? Yeah, I suppose from around 10 11 12 i was really started getting into wanting to cook like oh. just for kicks just because i enjoyed doing it you'd follow beautiful biscuits book in the woman's weekly beautiful biscuits book that i still love <laughs> it's um you know you make sure chocolate love cookies love out of that, that. Yeah. yeah it's a killer book <laughs> <laughs> and anzac biscuits and all that sort of stuff i mean it wasn't as if i put my chef hat on and put my head down from that age yeah. it was just i enjoyed it and i liked it and it was something that made me feel good so then coming up to my teenage years, then I was like, well, I want a job because I want to start earning money. I want to buy a car and I want to, you know, you know, be a cool teenager that has a car. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so we, yeah, so I, I decided to take a job at a place called Chino's Cafe uh, at the newly renovated supermarket in East Maitland. Nice. Uh, and so that had about... I think 30 seats in it and uh, it's just a cafe environment there were two cooks and a kitchen hand me and a couple of girls on the floor so I washed dishes religiously for eight months every Thursday night after school and then Sunday all day that was my double so that was a hairy one and then sometimes Saturday after I played sport I'd go in um, and so I did that and I really enjoyed it I didn't think that I was just washing dishes and it was hard and it was gross and you know you had to scrub the floors at the end. I'd get an extra 20 bucks cash in my hand if I vacuumed the floor out the front of the restaurant. So I thought it was great because I was on mm. a good deal. Um, and then they started letting me, you know, put a sandwich into the sandwich press and, you know, making salads and getting on the deep fryer. And then I even got to make coffee and run food. And so all those things, I think, were a good place to start to a degree because you'd be able to socially interact with people in the hospitality industry yeah. that were significantly older than me um, and, you know, it, it does make you grow up a little bit faster because you're not talking to your dickhead 15-year-old mates about, you know, school stuff. Um, yeah. You're talking to adults about, you know, their profession.
You're telling us an interesting story just before we got on about uh, turning up age 15, mm. soul dining at yeah. some of Sydney's, I guess, uh, well, at least in... Well, the big dogs back then. Yeah. So, yeah, all through that. Um, yeah, I, you know, when I started sniffing around the idea of doing an apprenticeship, I wanted to get an idea, I suppose, of what I was going to sign up for. Um, and I started, I first, I think the very first really significant dining experience I had in Sydney was at Aria. Um, and yeah, I went there and I had the quince souffle with saffron ice cream and I had the lamb tagine that was served in its own little pot with, you know, beautiful couscous and all these garnishes. And I think I had, a, uh, can't remember what else I had. I had that beautiful that pineapple jelly that was, you know, heavily talked about at the time because, you know, who knows how to set pineapple properly and you add a little bit of chilli in it and then gelatin works. So there was just, there were certain things throughout that meal that I can still remember now that were were fantastic and a big learning curve because you're sitting there and you're looking at the bridge and the opera house and Mm. there's a hundred staff running around you at your beckoning call to top up and to, to clean up and everything. And so I was fascinated by that. And then when I started, and then, you know, meals at Assiette uh, with Warren Turnbull, where you'd, you know, same as restaurants like Justin North, but Cass at um, Clarence Street as well when I ate there. You go to these restaurants and there's chefs in the kitchen all labouring over these beautiful plates of food and, you know, how can you get eight components out of a rabbit and put it with a little cube of pumpkin that has 100 layers of pumpkin in it? And there's just there were just details within those meals that because I was eating by myself that you can really you know get a great idea of the food and like the room and the level of like what sound the music's being produced at like is it too loud is it too dark are there you know is somebody talking to me too much while I'm eating is you know usually a meal involves conversation with a partner or um, alcohol um, which often all of that dilutes the total experience like it is wonderful to have a meal and share it with somebody but then to actually go in and purposefully try to understand the restaurant then I got a lot out of doing that Um, and that's I think part of the backbone of why I love what I do because a lot of it came from from those kind of solo meals that I've had Mm. Um, is it something you still get the opportunity to do or you try and make an effort to do no Not two kids, one on the two, way. Two kids, one on the way, and, and my <laughs> wife. And, and we, we eat out as a family. We try to every now and again, whenever we have the opportunity, we'll want to try out something um, that we've been told to go and check out. And, you know, we've usually got a checklist that we want to try and get to. And we I think our checklist that usually sees us going somewhere within three months might be 12 months now. But <laughs> yeah. um, we... Um, and it's nice to teach the kids, even at a young age, a bit of table decorum and try to get them to sit on their chairs and enjoy something different but um i think yeah we yeah we uh i lost my train of thought <laughs> whether, whether we were asking you whether you get to go out and uh, yeah and do, dine solo, solo yeah. but solo wise like there'll be the occasion i i had an occasion after doing the taste festival the taste of sydney in Hyde park uh in centennial park and uh we finished after having only opened the restaurant five months prior and then we're into this taste festival and the logistics for that thing trying to organize like 600 additional portions of food outside of your little restaurant that you have and knowing that still potentially reviewers are at the restaurant but i'm not there and like (laughs) and lots of chefies around and they're saying oh hey man we're at the restaurant and thanks for having us i'm like fuck them 
I'm at the festival and I'm like, I need to go back. And so there's this real, you know, I was worried about not being at the restaurant, but we got through this weekend relatively unscathed and, and it was this sense of like, okay, we nailed that. It was great. And then I'm like, you know what? I just, <laughs> I really just want to go eat meat. <laughs> I've been tasting this fish throughout the weekend, but not eating anything in between and really right. not sleeping at all. So I sat up at the bar at um, Esther by myself and that's still the best meal uh, I've had at Esther. Um, like it was so delicious. And Matt was really just that hospitality um, of coming out and saying good day and you know we're good friends and it's but him to come up and ask me how the weekend went and give me food until I said stop was just so good mm. and like that was just a nice experience to perfect what you needed yeah right that's then. right and yeah. yeah not to drink heaps of booze and all that sort of stuff but just to actually do what I used to do and really think about what I was eating and and feel as if you know the job well done like a bit of satisfaction mm. so. Yeah, it's good. Ask when. So originally, you first got into cooking. You were referencing cookbooks, yeah, um, and then going and dining solo in these restaurants. I mm-hmm. imagine there would have been a lot of inspiration that you took away from those experiences. At what point? Well, f- can you remember the first dish that you created yourself? Do you, do you actually remember what that was? The first thing Probably. you kind of pulled together and put on a plate? Probably toad in the hole. Like as right. a, like a really young. Like I was like. Yeah, I think it was like 14 or 15. I made a mess of this thing. It was like I was following a recipe, doing this toad in the hole. I don't know why I was doing it. I think I had a mate around from school as well, and we put this thing together, and it was horrible. But it was like, okay, <laughs> did that. But then uh, later doing like just a beef fillet that you buy, and beef fillet was such an extravagant thing and mm. probably still is more so. But um, just beef fillet with a compound butter on top of it made out of Tetsuya's truffle paste <laughs> and, um, you know, some sautéed wild mushrooms out of like a combo pack where you got like six or seven different mushrooms. So something like that was something <laughs> yeah. that I'd roll out weekly because I got fairly confident about cooking beef fillet mushrooms for mum and dad. But, um, yeah, when I started working, I started my first year apprenticeship in Newcastle for the brewery restaurant that was when I started kind of wanting to do a few more different things. So, Josh, like you've worked with some really well-known established, respected names. It's uh, uh, from Luke Mangan, uh, Stephen Hodges, uh, uh, Greg Doyle. Pete. Pete. <laughs> the, friendly, the friendly Doyle. The friendly Doyle. The friendly Doyle. <laughs> no, no. Um, and well, let's not mention, forget to mention your wife. Uh, yeah. And uh, But talk us through that. And, and, and it's been, I, I mean, one of the things that strikes us immediately is, is your age mm. and, you know, not the first person to say this or your last. How, how have you achieved this much in such a short space of time? And I don't know if you've even stopped to think about what it is you've, you've achieved, but it's um, to, to have a, a restaurant like yours right now with mm. the fish butchery, like it's not just another restaurant and the fish butchery is just not another fishmongers, right? Yeah. Like there's, there's something extra special about this. Yeah. I mean, I think the story that we just said about growing up and stuff I think a lot of that stems from my uh, desire to get on with it 
Um, and if I want something, then I'll go and do it. Uh, obviously, I need to be thorough in my thinking and make sure that it's, you know, well planned out and stuff. But if I believe in something that, you know, I think will be good or successful or, you know, so far, um, I'll just get on with it and do it. And luckily, I've got Julie who believes in me and what I want to achieve and what we want to achieve as well. Like, if, if I didn't have somebody as supportive as her, I wouldn't have achieved half the things um, that, that I've done. So, uh, I mean, I moved out of home when I was 17 because I just... Newcastle was fantastic, great learning curve as a basic kind of to get the 101, but then to meet, start meeting all these Sydney chefs through solo meals... Then I was like, well, I've got to kind of get to where the action is, so to speak. So um, moving down there, living by yourself, doing your own washing, even though occasionally I drive home and just dump it all on my <laughs> sort yeah. it out and then that'll do me the next fortnight, that kind of thing. But um, I, yeah, that was a big kind of, you know, set your alarm so that you turn up to work on time <laughs> yeah. and stuff like that. Always but, good stuff. Yeah, but working for somebody like Luke and Joe Pavlovich at um, at Glass was great because of the hotel, I suppose, that it was in provided the, you know, the uniform on a hook for you when you walked in and, and you know, allowed... It was like a, an easing into the Sydney workforce, but in saying that, we worked really hard at Glass and that was a huge restaurant. It was like 240-seat bistro. And I really enjoyed working there because it was like an elevation of what I'd been doing and it was um, uh, just trying to get your organisation right for mm. that amount of people. Um, and just funny experiences there, like meeting Michelle Rue, like senior, like the big dog. Right. <laughs> he came out to promote his egg book and um, Luke was like, okay, Michelle's coming out and made a big deal out of it. And I, was, I knew who he was because I had some of his books. And... Um, said Josh you're going to be poaching eggs with Michelle and I'm like okay cool and then he arrived and then him and I went out to this double stock pot out in the back of the Hilton's kitchen stupidly big stock pot like proper industrial and we're filling this thing up with water and he's glugging the vinegar into it and we're getting all these big spiders and we start spinning the water in the pots and Michelle's got all these eggs and then before you know it I'm working out that I'm standing next to Michelle Rue poaching 500 eggs for his function <laughs> that night and I just thought it was the coolest thing ever and I got you know an hour standing next to him having a chat with him about eggs I didn't know what I was talking about but I was like it was just yeah a good experience and then Gordon Ramsay came and ate it you know glass and I was opening oysters and had a little glimpse over it to see him and so it was it was a really nice way to start meeting people in the industry um, and Joe and Luke really kind of educated me well and I put my hand up for Luke and said that I'd want to do some of his external work for him like to prepare his food for the Today Show on a Tuesday so that I could get an extra half hour with Luke, sit in the car with him, see how he talked to people, see how he held himself and um, and that was kind of invaluable information that you know he wouldn't directly tell me but I would just watch um, and so that was amazing to do that uh, and then I went on and worked at Est with Peter Doyle which you know still for me was the one of the most enjoyable work experiences I've ever had just because uh, the way Peter held himself and the way he treated his staff and you know Maryvale as a company was fantastic and mm. looked after everybody and paid everybody properly and just it was just a good experience and Peter's food was so 
identifiably his own without any kind of, you know, external forces impacting the way that his style was. He was very honest in his approach and didn't really detour away from what Peter Doyle did. <laughs> and I suppose that's what I, I took away from working with Pete was just the sense of humility and um, just how to be a respectful human being, really. Like, and I know that sounds silly to say, but, like, there's so... Sometimes a lot of humanity comes out of the profession, like, and, like, the lack of manners used in the kitchen and the lack of, you know, respect for one another sometimes, like, mm. in the heat of the moment. Like, and I know that can happen, but it always seemed to be that there was such good decorum in that kitchen. Um, and, yeah, we learnt a lot. He pushed us around the sections. We, we learned how to cook meat properly. We learned how to cook fish properly. And, you know, things that were cooked to order and all that sort of stuff. So, but at the three-hat level. And then I went on and worked for Steve Hodges at Fish Face. And a funny story, which I'll make really quick, is uh, we... My first trial there was me standing observing the service um, and I'm standing back and watching what's happening. There's a young girl in the corner on fryer. The, the kitchen was not too dissimilar from what I've got at St Peter now. Young girl on fryer, head chef boy in on the pans, Stephen opening oysters and doing the cash register and, you know, having a drink. And then um, <laughs> and then sushi chef next to, next to me. Um, and a kitchen hand behind me, so it's pretty cramped. And all of a sudden, this plate of food came back to the chef, who then got told it was uncooked, and you know, carried on a bit from the front of house to the chef, saying, "Oh, it's not cooked. It's not right. Fix it." And then this boy, I think, had got a bit of a bit of jack of it. The whole situation didn't want a bar of what he'd been told. Threw the plate and smashed it, and kind of carried on with the kitchen and. I think another 10 minutes went by and it all kind of kept growing into this beast and checks everywhere. And He kind of told everybody where to go and then walked off service and went outside. And then Steve walked off service to go after him. And so then me as a trial, I think I was 19, I would have been 19, watching this thing implode and, and the boy had left, Steve had left, the young girl on fryers crouched down beside a bin in tears because um, she'd just been told where to go. Uh, and then the sushi chef still doing his thing, just cutting fish, <laughs> uh, unfazed by anything. But then the restaurant being full um, and then looking at a whole rack of dockets like needing to be cooked, you know, and then I just decided I'd do it. And so I jumped on and I cooked the food and Steve and this boy came back and, and things seemed to have been resolved. And I said to um, Steve, I said, oh, I think, you know, everything, everything went and I think it's okay because I, I watched what he was doing before, so hopefully everybody's good. And he goes, yeah, what do you think? And I said, oh, yeah, I mean, it was okay. yeah, it was good. And then he goes, do you, do you want the job? And I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> so I don't know what made me, what possessed me to say yes, but, um, you know, it was one of those things where it was a bit of a birth into fire and, yeah, um, I enjoyed the intensity of it and the realness to what Fish Face was, like the fact that nothing was pre-cooked, nothing was... Um, manhandled like it was all you know you went into service with a raw mushroom and then you cooked it and gave it to somebody and that's you know I think a la carte cooking is wonderful for that sense that you're taking raw product into service and then you you cook it and you're feeding people their dinner that they're paying significant amounts of money for mm. there needs to be some form of generosity and value to what they're 
to what they're getting like um, and I think that that realness where the kitchen is open and they're looking in and they're seeing people working on their dinner <laughs> like a, it's basic but I, I, I enjoy that part of it it's you, a no. I was going to say it's an interesting recruitment style. Um, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Maybe I thought you were going to say it was a test. Like that. I was <laughs> yeah. setting you up to see if you could handle it. Yeah, that. no, but, he ended up leaving. Like, <laughs> <laughs> he took his job. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was just going to ask, is, is that where the real passion around fish, seafood, kind of was ignited? Or had it, had it kind of been festering before then? Or was it, was yeah. it really brought out in that environment? I mean, yeah, working for people like Luke Mangan and Pete Doyle and all these guys, they're all synonymous with Australian seafood to a degree they all handle seafood really well Mm. Um, but Stephen was so unique because he just there's nothing that he didn't know like he basically knew everything about fish and when you work for somebody like Steve um, he's like he can sell ice to an Eskimo he'll tell you everything and you're not allowed to venture off that like what he tells you is the law um, yeah, right. so if he says you know don't put water on a fish you will never put water on a fish in your life ever again and if you eat a piece of fish that Stephen's cooked you in the restaurant like he'll cook a piece of fish and try this and tell me what you think and just to understand what the flavor of fish was and you'd eat a piece of fish and you're spoiled then from then on mm-hmm. you go and eat a piece of fish somewhere else and it'll never be as good and you know even yeah just the way he did things and the way he thought about fish was so logical and basic but it's just nobody had explained it to me in that way before Mm. and to get that volume of fish coming through the doors all the time and not just the rogue kind of two fillets of this and you know we'll just get a few more fillets of that for the menu to make up the menu this was like couple of boxes of Bass Grove, a couple of boxes of John Dory. Like it was an intense, you know, laborious job, like where fish would come in, scales on, guts in. And before that, I hadn't really handled whole fish before. Right. Like besides TAFE where they give you a defrosted sole to, you know, thaw out and fill it and put with brown butter and capers, like that kind of thing. But Stephen, you know, always got whole fish in, whole prawns, like all fresh everything and it was um we had tanks there as well so it was a really good experience um to work with somebody as profound as him um but as well now with what we do at st peter a lot of the basic common sense stuff that he trained me there has now evolved into us dry aging fish and us using you know every single part of the fish Mm. like we we cooked liver on toast at fish face because i was just fascinated by something so significant coming out of the fish and why would you put that in the bin so I cooked it for him one day and put it on toast with some pasta and he thought it was the best thing ever so we, we put it on the menu and that kind of made me feel like okay well this is delicious and something worth spending time on and as much as it didn't really fit into the fish face model at the time because yep. of the clientele that it had and it still expected its you know ocean trout in fillet pastry and Santa cuts a blue eye with the potato scales on top of it and all that um, that kind of side of my brain was working to think, well, how how can I make eyes delicious? How can I use the roe and not make bataga? Like, how can I do extra things? And um, and it wasn't until Cafe Nice when I took over the kitchen at Cafe Nice for Barry McDonald that I had the kitchen to myself to a degree where I was able to manage people myself but also write a menu myself to a degree. Like, it had to fall under that nissoir banner but um to get whole fish in through the doors and to start doing what i'd done at 
fish face and start building up a little bit of momentum going into St. Peter was a good thing. But um, that's probably skipped a few years ahead. But the reason for working at Cafe Nice was because nobody had ever really left me to my own devices in the kitchen yeah. where I was personally responsible for educating them and for creating a bit of a culture in the kitchen and making sure that my labour cost and my food cost fell into line because, you know, I signed a contract with Barry in the beginning to say your food cost must be this and your labour cost must be this after 12 months. And to see it after 12 months and it to fall into line was totally satisfying, even though throughout the year there was many a Thursday meeting getting my head ripped off for not being in line. But without that 12 months of training with Barry, then St Peter probably wouldn't have been a reality. But after doing it, it gave me a sense of confidence that, okay, it's not as daunting. It's just that I didn't know and mm. no one had kind of really just given it to me. Because when you're not given something, you just kind of, okay, it's working and I'll just keep doing it yeah, the way I'm doing it. But, yeah, so that was the momentum that I needed to go in rather than just t- kind of taking another he- head chef job and putting dishes on the menu like the other day. And yeah. now the end is near And so I face the final curtain my friend, I'll say it clear. So was it a strategic decision to, to yeah, go into a role like so. that? Yeah, okay. yeah. Like, so St Peter, when did the um, when did the seed sort of begin to sprout for St Peter? And um, probably halfway into the time at Cafe Needs when I was really seriously like, I need to open my own place, and it just needs to be fish because I think at the time it was at the demise of Fish Face down at Double Bay. Yeah. Um, and I looked through books and like articles online and there really wasn't a fish restaurant in Sydney like there was a few like more fish and um, love fish and you know great places like that but um, for me for what I wanted and what I knew fish face was and all this sort of stuff there was a huge gap like in terms of an accessible somewhat detailed fish venue like where you could actually go in and you could just get an a la carte main course and have it with a glass of shardy and then go home or you just come in and have some oysters and then go home like Mm. I wanted people to use it Um, and so that's when I started piecing it together uh, a bit and then when I found this site that we went into at St Peter which was it used to be Toko Sushi Train Um, and I liked it because of the shape like it was really long and narrow and um you couldn't fit many people in it, so I knew that I wouldn't be, you know, doing <laughs> yeah. this shit. But, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's funny because 34 seats at St. Peter was 34 seats at the original Darlinghurst at Fish Face. So I had had experience in cooking for that many people at the one time. Yep. And like Steve always said to us, it's like even on the busiest of nights, we're like, oh, I've signed the shit, I'm so busy. And it's like, hey, you can't cook for any more people than 34, so shut up. <laughs> like, so you might end up doing 90 people in a service, but ultimately this is how many you're feeding at one time and so you got your head around that and you could make it work but um we managed to get a decent deal with the with the rent and with the terms that you know all of that and and it all just kind of fell into place and we were lucky to find that toko space which had a grease trap which had an existing cool room uh it had fridges in there which we still use to the day 
Um, although all the pipes had been cut on the end, so we had to repipe it all, which was a bit frustrating, but can't have everything. Um, and then it had a um, storage space upstairs with an office and a laundry and all of that. So literally it all had everything to just kind of plug in and go. Um, and so we started, Julie's pretty savvy, like she, she managed to find things on Gumtree and we looked at restaurants that had closed and we went and we hijacked everything out of there. Yeah. Uh, out of their spaces there was one in Westfield that shut um, and we managed to take the bonkhead off the wall and um, right. table bases and all that sort of stuff so we put together St. Peter on the smell of an oily rag but it, it came together really well and we didn't overcapitalize in the venue itself and I think people when they go there they're like yeah they didn't overcapitalize <laughs> <laughs> but I'm um, I'm totally fine with that like I don't like St. Peter's about great fish and you know Yes, it's hospitality and we need to look after people and make sure they're comfortable and, you know, um, well looked after. But it was always the priority was about how can we give people a piece of fish that they'll walk out of here and go, I've never had fish like that in my life. Yeah. And also then in a month's time be able to tell people that they actually ate harpuka at the restaurant, not bascropa, not snapper, not, you know, all these other species types. I actually had harpuka and I understood what it tasted like and... And I've yet to have a better piece kind of thing. Like, I, uh, yeah, that was kind of the real aspiration of St. Peter in the beginning to, to make it a, a fish eatery where people could eat Australian fish and drink Australian wine um, and just, yeah, not be too over the top, just casual. Nice. So you, you do, how might this right, an octopus head scotch egg. egg. Yeah. And don't consider that too over the top. But a lot yeah. of people might consider yeah. that pretty over the top. Like, did, did you get nervous when you kind of went out with dishes like that on a, in a new restaurant? Did it, did it, did it I think, scare uh, you at all that might be confronting? Um, I had a few people said a few different things at the beginning of the restaurant's life where it was like, oh, just, you know, maybe cool your jets on some of this more intense stuff. Mm. But then I think there was a... A real like when we opened St Peter, the very first day that we, oh sorry, the very first service that we had, had you know the likes of the Terry Jurax and the Patners and all that, those guys coming in. But then on top of that, I had a full restaurant of regulars, and a regular was the regulars that I had at Fish Face. So the void in their lives that was you know Fish Face meal every Sunday or every Tuesday, like Tuesday evening, then got filled with St Peter. So they all turned up on their first week and they stuck to their original system of fish face regular time slots that they had. And so with the restaurant half full of reviewers and then half full of, um, you know, regular clientele that I personally knew and had cooked for for years, they're yelling out over on top of these people um, saying, oh, what are we having? What's good? You know, and it matured the restaurant straight away. Yeah, like right. it, it gave me personally more confidence to just go, okay, well, you just keep going almost. It's like the restaurant's yeah. existed already for 10 years. Um, and so I didn't feel as, like, daunted about, uh, oh, maybe they won't like this or maybe they... Because I'd done parts of what I ended up doing now at St. Peter at Fish Face. So putting liver on toast was totally comfortable for me to do and knew that those people, even the likes of the 60-plus-year-old you know, guests that I cook for are comfortable with and there's a sense of trust there because, you know, I have been cooking for them. They know what I do. Um, 
so yeah, I think it's that inbuilt trust that they knew what they were expecting. Uh, and so then from there, I was able to just go hard pretty much. So octopus head, scotch egg sounds a little bit too out there, but ultimately an octopus's head is the same as its tentacle. Yeah. Um, it's the same protein makeup like you eat it and it tastes like the tentacle it just doesn't look like the tentacle but when you look at a head you think well i could put an egg in that like a lot of these dishes (laughs) a lot of these yeah a lot of the dishes that we ended up doing at st peter were born out of observation like completely like um you know potato scallop that you fill with tomato sauce and then batter it and deep fry it and it's like a self-sourcing potato scallop like you do it because you see that there's a little puffed gap in between the starch like in terms of the skin of the potato and then the actual flesh of the potato there's a gap i'm gonna put sauce in it like it's you know and we have a lot of fun doing that stuff um dry aged fish was because as a small business owner you want to purchase beautiful fish all the time so you buy it you need to store it properly um meaning you know you need to have the right refrigeration to do so which is part of the education that i got at fish face where the cool room that is built within the cool room has copper coil wrapped on the walls and it keeps that particular part of the cool room at around zero degrees. And so it doesn't have a fan in there blowing fan air all over the fish and drying it out and making it like jerky. It basically maintains the quality of the fish that you purchase on day one right through to like day 12, day 13. Wow. And where we used to lay our fish down on trays at Fish Face you know you'd get a moist side and then a a slightly drier top and then at the end of the night you'd turn the fish over and it's that constant turning that prolonged its shelf life and then i thought well if you can remove that moist side altogether and just put it on a hook and let the air pass around it then we should get another x amount of days and through then actually purposefully hanging fish on hooks looking after them you know scrubbing the blood out of the bones at the back of the fish with a toothbrush and really investing a lot of time and effort into watching what happened through time um then we actually started understanding what fish's flavor started tasting like um throughout the course of its life and and obviously like you know like any business you you want to like you want to sell everything you purchase (laughs) um so if you can't move a wild kingfish in three days, then you probably have to ramp up the lemon juice and you'd have to start thinking about, oh, right, maybe we make croquettes out of it. Maybe, maybe we, you know, and the panic button kind of goes and it's like, how, the, how do we fuck this fish off before it spoils? Like, and so we had the advantage because we're thinking about it and we're trying to understand that kingfish actually taste better after 12 days and it makes your mouth water because it's got this thing about it that's... Um, tastes like it's already had lemon juice squeezed on it when you eat it on day one you eat it and you're like wow it's kind of it's got this like light sourness to it like this acidity to it what if we left it for like a really long time and then came back to it and ate it and then we found it actually made your mouth water like you were salivating while you're eating it we had some really good experiments with with fish early on um, and we had good results and you know I was lucky that I kept up to date with the Instagram and I kept taking photos and people kept enjoying what we were posting which sounds stupid and very like millennial of me even though I was born in 1988 but um you know 
Instagram is so powerful and I think you're, I don't know, you need it. You have to have it. You have to be on it. You have to be on it constantly uh, if you want to make sure that people are aware of what you're doing because um, I think you, you could slip off the radar fairly quickly if, if it wasn't in people's eyeline all the time. Yeah. Um, and in the space of like 10 months, I picked up 25,000 followers and it just kind of went like really full on. And that helped, I think, attract international kind of people popping in and seeing what we were doing um you know we got a review by the new york times which was completely flattering and wow you know cool i didn't even think that was a possibility so um yeah having fun and talk to us a little bit about the fish butchery yeah butchery uh came about because we ran out of space at saint peter (laughs) like we like i said we we kind of took a space that was um very small um and we had one cool room which had the little fish fridge inside it and we'd get to the pointy end of the week around the friday saturday time and the fish like the fridge would be chockers and the expectation started to grow that we want to try your aged fish and we want to try your you know all your cool stuff um (laughs) and basically um we were kind of just jumbling what we could into that fridge and I didn't feel as confident in the product because we just had had run out of space and and we had a lot of talent in the kitchen as well like a lot of good people starting to work for us and um, so the butchery really came out of a desire to spread our wings a little bit and give ourselves more space but also because I found it's very hard to find really really good quality fish to have at home um, like and and also a diverse range of species to offer. Um, usually, it's the highly trafficked species that you continue to see in your supermarkets and and um, you know just your average fish shop. There, you stand stock standard barras and salmon's and and snappers and all that sort of stuff. And we always fall back on those uh, because we have the inbuilt method in our mind on how to grill a piece of salmon and it won't be dry and you know stuff like that. So. The butchery, I, I, Julie and I both really wanted to open a space where we could employ chefs to sell fish, um, to give people a better idea on, on where the seasons were up to so that fish actually have seasons and, and we wanted to convey that message. And we wanted to offer a diverse amount of species, that of like a sardine, right up to Mark Ether's line called Spanish mackerel. Um, so... Yes, at times the butchery can be intimidating to walk into and kind of go, whoa, like that much a kilo for a piece of fish? And it's like I think because it's never been um, put into that kind of environment where you get a real, you know, showcase of elite fish and then, you know, less premium fish, um, but all handled the way that we've handled it at St. Peter Um, and also a way to offer, you know, a domestic audience dry-aged fish mm. and something that they may never have had before um so we got the butchery open and it took a lot of uh conversation and still does to make sure people actually understand how to use us because where a traditional fish shop is known as a fishmonger and this is where i got a lot of emails about how you shouldn't call it a butchery um <laughs> but a, a monger is somebody that deals and trades in a commodity it's somebody who is trying to find the best fish and then sell it um and that's all like that's what a monger is but then butchery uh is you know a butcher is somebody that takes a carcass and dresses and value adds to the product to then sell it um so i wanted to merge 
part of the meat world into the fish world. Mm. Um, and a lot of my cooking kind of comes down to that as well, whether it's a King George White in Kiev or a swordfish ribeye or, you know, there's so much of the meat world that we can merge into the fish world and then we can start coming up with a whole new repertoire of things. Um, so the butchery was about minimising our waste. It was about trying to find more fish in Australia, trying to uncover a few more fishermen that we haven't worked with before um, because fish seems to work in volumes. They'll only talk to you if you take over X amount. Right. Um, you know, if I want to buy somebody's really beautiful fish, you can't just take four fish. <laughs> you need to take four boxes. Um, and so through doing that, um, we're able to offer the customers some really elite, beautiful fish. Um, and it's nice to have repeat loyal local customers that appreciate what we're doing. But as well, that conversation around how should they cook it? How will they have a good St. Peter experience with that fish at home? What else? But the butchery really, we, we had to really think about how to sell it. Like it's not so much, like still there's so much confrontation around fish. Mm. Um, the smell of it, the, you know, how do I handle it at home? Like yeah. I need to do what Curtis said and that's buy a whole fish and you know, give it a crack with the scales on and the guts in and you do that at home and you're finding scales weeks later after that in your curtains and, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and there's just, there's always, you always end up with shit everywhere and, and, you know, me personally, I don't enjoy preparing fish at home. Like, honestly, I, I wouldn't go down to the markets and take a whole fish, take it home, scale and gut it and, mm. you know, fill it and come oh like, I don't want to do that because I know that you know the extraction at home isn't like the extraction at the restaurant and you know you don't have the chopping boards and it's just a different world like you you can't do what you do at a restaurant at home and so to provide people with a pan ready product so that they can just put in a pan and have a good experience with it was really I Julie and I both thought it was a desirable um thing to offer people um and you now sort of doing wholesale in yeah. from, from there's there's we we had the idea that you know if we are going to be getting all this beautiful fish in um and uh we're, we're able to move at retail and we're able to self-supply our you know the yeah. restaurant um because we've got the fish there and we've got friends in the industry that like good fish and they like buying in a similar way to what we do and that's what do you got what's yeah. good <laughs> and always the question always the question that uh, a chef always asks is um, what else have you got? you got something different? <laughs> is there anything different that you've got there? And so we can have those good conversations now with chefs and we can just put out a list every week um, that, that kind of tells them where the fish was caught who the fisherman was and you know, if it's aged, if it wasn't um, you know, whether you want to have some offal with the fish um, whether you want it butterfly or whether you know there's a whole lot of options now because it's a chef dealing with a chef yeah and so it's a good little model that we've got uh and we're looking after about uh six restaurants now which is really cool um and i think they're appreciating yeah well i yeah. guess the upside of that is that that education that you've evolved I yeah. think, from fish face yes you're now able to propagate into presumably six restaurants around sydney who all of whom are i guess you know, speaking from or learning from yeah. the work that you've picked up from Steve and That's right. others. And, and, and to offer cuts outside the realm of just a fillet is exciting. Like to give somebody a bone-in cut that, you know, looks a little bit like a lamb cutlet um, or like a, you know, rib of beef. And like there's just so many other options. Like I was talking about rules in fish. Why can't we 
just broaden our horizons a little bit and start looking at fish like we look at meat because if we looked at it like meat you look at on even on google you type in meat recipes it's just like <laughs> boom yeah. but then you look at fish recipes it's like a fillet with x or a, like it's usually a garnish orientated yeah diversity uh so a fish will get cooked in tomato but if you actually thought about the fish could you not make that into something different like yeah. <laughs> um so yeah like i think saint peter i'm learning a lot all the time whether it's to do with my staff how to how to deal with them um and and how to help them grow uh because the expectation around saint peter now is uh growing and so i i don't want staff to leave saint peter not even knowing how to fillet a fish um and i mean that's the hard part right because the expectation is that i cook everybody's dinner um it's my restaurant it's a small place where's josh is he cooking like and so trying to not step out of the kitchen but find a little bit more i don't want to say the b word but balance um (laughs) when it comes to trusting the staff to uh do what i do and uh i think that's the hardest part about it is like being able to go home um because the restaurant's open six days uh the butchery's open five mondays nothing's open so that's my turn off day that's podcast day Um, (laughs) but um (laughs) i think yeah that's that's the really challenging part because you can teach any chef how to cook a piece of fish but you can't teach them intuition Mm. like i walk in and i look at things in the cool room it's like okay we don't need to buy anything for tomorrow because we can make x y and z like you and that's how you manage food costs and um that's the hard part because all the young chefs and even just chefs in general, we always want to put the best thing on the plate. But the best thing might not necessarily be the thing that we purchased today for the day. Like, And that's something that Steve taught me. It's like you might make a beautiful garnish that looks amazing and it's, you know, people talk about it and stuff. But then what happens to the last takeaway of that garnish at the end of the night? Do you just flick it off or do you think about how you can use it the next day? Mm. And you can't always be purchasing that's the that's the thing that I've had many a battle with like with chefs at St. Peter and prior to this it's like it's great to be popular and people want to eat at your restaurant but it's a business like you've got to you've got to make it work um and you have to keep the food cost in check and you can't have a tribe of chefs just doing doing your bidding um so that you can have your night off you've got to make it work it's got to be sustainable for years to come both you know the choices that you make with the fish in that sustainable sense but then also sustainable for the industry and making sure that people are mentally and physically sound uh, to, to do their jobs So, Josh, I guess the word that's come up a lot in the course of this podcast is sustainability. Yep. And the thing that I wanted to pick your brains on a little bit is that concept applied to staff because, mm. again, I read somewhere that, uh, and I'm not sure how your accountant feels about this, <laughs> you thought 34 seats in a restaurant, um, I'm going to put more chefs than I need on, yeah. not less. So can you talk us through that? Yeah, like, yeah. during that decision? And- we, we opened St. Peter with three chefs. Um, myself was one of those three <laughs> and then I thought that would be enough and I shut the restaurant Monday and Tuesday um, so 
you know, there, there's the day off sorted. So then you work the rest of it um, because we're a really small business and, you know, hopefully hopefully we'll see through to the other side of it. And for now, it's just about making it all work and let's just get on with it. Um, and in the beginning, we weren't doing the Friday lunch. So it was kind of, we'd just do dinner services Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Uh, and then Saturday, Sunday was our kind of double day, so to speak. But, you know, the beginning of the week was just as hard, just getting ready for one service. Um, so it, it kind of reached a point a few months into St. Peter where we were just like, we can't can't keep doing this because I'm like, I'm personally like exhausted, like physically can't <laughs> roll out anymore of a morning. And um, I know the guys in the kitchen were really um, just tired and missing, I suppose, being normal. Um, and doing something more than just sleeping on the Monday, then Tuesday doing what they had to get done so that then battle mm-hmm. stations again on Wednesday. Um, and so then Julie and I really thought, well, you know, it's either going to be that we expire very quickly or we actually invest in making this thing work for years to come. And so at that point then we decided, um, like we had that conversation with the accountant and said, you know, Yes, the wage cost looks good at the moment, but <laughs> we need to go from three up to six. So we had to double the staff. Um, so we doubled the kitchen staff. And that was right around that time, June, July, um, pre any kind of awards and all that sort of stuff. It was We'd come through the kind of fanfare of opening and um, we were going through the motions and then we like, okay, hire these people. Then it went quiet at the restaurant and numbers were down in the restaurant and, and our labour costs just blew out through the roof. <laughs> and then through that, then looking at it, uh, the week after making that decision, the food costs went down but the wages went up and through and, and it was in that moment of looking at what we were doing and, and seeing the fish come through the doors, we actually started uh, coming up with all these recipes for using you know using the eyes and using the blood and you know all these different recipes that I had never done before it was only the liver and roe really that I'd done before and it was really trying to work out what the 60% loss was capable of and by 60% loss I mean the mantra of a fish having a 40% yield and a 60% loss so with all those extra bodies and hands around I said let's start thinking about what we can come up with. And so by doing that and putting them on the menu and selling them and people becoming inspired and interested by it, we noticed the food costs kind of plummet and and that was amazing because then it offset the hugely inflated wage bill. Mm. Um, and so then my accountant was like, are you going to sort this wage thing out? Are you going to flick off a few people? Are you going to sort it out? And I'm, I'm like, just cool your jets, just wait, just be patient, please. And mm. so we got through to, you know, the Time Out Awards, we got through to the, you know, good food and AFR and all that sort of stuff. And, and we, all the hard work and effort that had gone into that kind of first 12 months was starting to, you know, you could see a tangible product then at the end of it. And it's like, okay, cool, we, we won this and we, we got that and well done everyone and pats on the back. And then that generated the bums on seats uh, and, and also then leading into summer and fish and summer so synonymous with mm. Sydney and, and I suppose globally as well when really everybody should be eating fish in winter because <laughs> it's better. But, um, you know, going into a busy summer then really gave the restaurant its legs and, and we worked out how to manage that 
wages up, food down thing to then a better equilibrium. So, um, uh, so now the way we tackle our staff is we give them four days on and three days off. Um, and that's, that's, I don't know, you don't want to say luxurious, but it, it's a good thing for a small restaurant like that to actually mm. prove that you can do that in a small venue. Um, and the guys turn up a lot more physically ready. Uh, and the way I look at it is if they get enough time for themselves, they've got enough to give the restaurant, uh, whether that's mental application of thinking a little bit more thoroughly about you know, a recipe that we're trying to work out or whether it's just coordinating a service better so that they can, you know, uh, organise themselves better so that they're ready for service. So being well-rested has been the benefit of that four-day on, three-day off thing. Yeah, I guess it's just the, that thing, like, and I've never worked in a kitchen or um, behind a bar, but, yeah. you know, you have those uh, perceptions about what, treatment of staff has been like yeah. in the industry there's uh mental health issues uh are you okay yes um like i guess an industry initiative around that at the moment actually yeah. coming up um and i i guess looking at it from my perspective um and listening to you talk and, yeah. and also in the same way if you're thinking about how to um make the most out of the fish mm. how, to, how to make the most out of Staff and also, you know, as an employer, and yeah. we all run businesses here, yes. we understand how important it is to take care of people. Mm. You aspire to that, and yeah. that's a bit of a change, I think, that's in the industry at the moment. And mm. yeah, I, guess I think, um, like what you're saying there, um, staff retention oftentimes is a tricky one in hospitality because you go to a restaurant to work out because you have a an interest in what they're doing otherwise why would you work there but you know immediately people are interested to come work with us because of something that we do or something like that but through thinking about the sustainability of fish then gets people inspired to come and work for you and then in turn um trying to provide them with a sustainable lifestyle and look after them properly like um pleases and thank yous in the kitchen are a norm for us, like I, I just don't understand why that doesn't happen more. I think that's basic common courtesy goes a long way. Um, it's being, I don't know, I always just say to the guys, just be normal, be <laughs> nice, be kind, just don't don't get too far ahead of yourself. It's, um, we're just, I don't know, I put it down to like, we're there to cook people's dinner. Like that's what we do. Um, and I don't I don't treat it any differently to the way, what I used to do to mum and dad. And it's like they're your audience, and you know you got to cook with a lot of love and passion. And you know that sounds really corny and lame, but if if you care about what you're cooking and and you know you understand where the product's coming from, from your fisherman who woke up at three o'clock in the morning, um, to then you who stood there all day for twelve hours or ten hours picking, you know all these little herbs for something that you think is pointless and. You know, if you can remove, like you get told at the beginning of the day by your restaurant manager, you got 40 packs booked tonight. What's a packs? Like, mm. there's 40 people that are booked tonight that are eating at your restaurant um, that have made plans that maybe your sisters come back from London or maybe babysitters have come for the first time in a year. Maybe mum's just finally able to go out after having the baby and it's the first date night after that and she wants to eat the raw fish because she hasn't been able to eat the raw fish. Like, there's all these moments that chefs at times don't consider. Like you have to be so mindful that it's a big night. Like it's any meal shared together where you're paying money should be a great experience. Um, 
and I don't know, we lose sight of that sometimes, the humility of cooking and, and the fact that it's got to be a genuine gift to somebody. Like you, I don't know, I'd, I get frustrated by, you know, meals that aren't enjoyable. <laughs> um, I know that people have lots of un, unenjoyable meals, but I don't know, yeah. there's, there's just... Um, and happy staff in turn give you happy food, make happy customers, business goes on. What makes a good restaurant as far as you're concerned? Like, what, what do you seek out? Can you, yeah. can you um, I guess, is it, is it, are you able to consistently identify it within the restaurants that you enjoy, do you think? Or is it something yeah. that's almost intangible and, and people just, it's a bit of magic involved? <laughs> uh, I mean, <clears throat> the restaurants that Julie and I both love eating at, like, and this is talking broadly, uh, Rockwell Bar and Grill, um, LP's Quality Meats, Billy Kwong, yeah. uh, Sean's Panorama, and I suppose St John in London, and uh, Swan Oyster Depot in San Fran, um, places like that. And, I mean, some of those are very different to one another, but, I mean, places in particular like Sean's Panorama, um, you know, we absolutely adore that restaurant. We've had so many wonderful, like, occasional meals there Mm. and I see that as being almost the epitome of what I see as great hospitality that's timeless like every time you go to Sean's for me is like always hitting the nail on the head and there's a genuine attempt to make you feel like you're the only people in the room and I think it's because I know that you know a lot of what happened at Fish Face where we cooked everything to order is happening at Sean's Sean has grown items for the menu like if it's tomatoes if tomatoes are running the counter will be full of tomatoes and say, like, fuck, I've got to get the tomatoes. <laughs> you know, like, if, you, if he serves you a poached peach for dessert, it's going to be the best peach you've ever had in your life. Um, you're sitting right on the beach. Everything feels like it should. Nothing's forced. The service is so knowledgeable. Like, they can rattle off a A4 document worth of menu without looking at a menu. Like, mm. and, and so you know that they love their job and they love their employer and it's a happy place like I think same with Billy Kwong like Kylie's training to all her staff there's so much consistency across the board whether it's like the perfection of a little dumpling that's been hand rolled to then you know somebody's education about the bottle of wine that they're pouring and and I think that's what Julie and I really aspire to be is somewhere that's timeless and somewhere that's Mm. consistent and somewhere that um, is very assured of their position, I suppose. Like, they understand what they're selling um, and they're not always chopping and changing. It's very... There's a clear direction and a clear path and if you can convey that to your customers, then I think then they're able to get their heads around it and they're able to enjoy it. I suppose if you don't know what you're in for, you're kind of questioning a lot of things all the time. Mm. you kind of you got a rockpool bar and grill to have the steak, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, if you kind of believe in that, you'll you know really enjoy that steak kind mm. of thing. Like uh, some pretty big names you've thrown out there. I mean, Sean's really yeah. rockpool bar and grill. I yeah. mean, they're three examples yeah. of institutions in That's Sydney right. that have really stood the test of time. Hundred percent. And I'm still perplexed as to how they do it. <laughs> yeah. Like how how they are still extremely at the top of their games and you go into the venues and they're so well manicured and they're mm. so well looked after like um, whether it's a lick of paint that you give the place every six months or you know whether you fix the squeaky door at the back after two years or you know there has to be this 
constant checking like to remain consistent you have to be always changing and that's not so much to change the color of the restaurant or you know anything like or change the style it's just details within and that's something that Stephen really taught me when you walk through the restaurant doors was the glass clean and if it's not and clean the fucking glass <laughs> yeah. like, and it's like well that's not my job I'm the chef and it's like the glass is fucking dirty clean it and that was a big learning curve is to notice details yeah like and like we chatted about before have I ever had to concern myself with the front of house at St Peter no I haven't I've been very lucky that I've worked with amazing Wimmy um, who who runs the restaurant and I rarely step on her toes uh, because I know that she's capable of uh global excellence because she did so many wonderful things for key restaurant and mm. everywhere she goes she turns you know she sprinkles a bit of wimmy dust everywhere and makes everything <laughs> wonderful but um i think uh i i intervene at times just for details and that comes from being a small business owner who's invested yeah in the <laughs> in what's going on so if somebody is looking where to hang their jackets. I hope that somebody's right behind them, grabbing the jacket off them, that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, and I think those 1% details are what make, I hope, St. Peter a, a good place to be. Um, and, you know, as long as we can continue to uphold that standard, then I, I can't see why we can't be a Sean's or a Billy Kwong. So I heard some good advice on this um, on an interview you gave recently. And yeah. I'm going to quote you back Here to yourself. <laughs> In terms of that thing that you were feeling about being perplexed and how you get to that level, yeah. I think you said this, nothing is ever destined to succeed, nor will it continue to succeed. It's how you apply yourself. Yeah. I think um, I think that that you that those attention to the 1% are, yeah. is probably what has taken you to where you have got yeah. to today and will continue into the future. Mm. Right. We can totally cut this question out if yeah. you don't want it. But, um, <laughs> You seem really driven. Like, you, you're obviously very sure. You seem very confident. I think people that take risks or put themselves into positions like you have, um, uh, that's a skill set or it's a mindset that not everyone has. Yeah. Do you think being sick at a young age mm. and, and being faced with something that could potentially have been terminal mm -hmm. um, changed the way you thought ongoing like yeah. has it resulted in you just not having a, a certain uh, level of fear around maybe decisions or topics that ordinarily may have been there had you not been sick or yeah I suppose I can't answer that because I don't know the other way but yeah. in saying what I have been through I know uh, after everything that went on you do get a heightened level of focus as to like I write stuff down on my phone all the time that I want to achieve yeah. like uh, if I see something or know something is possibly attainable I'll write it down and then I'll mark it off when I get it kind of thing so right. butchery was in my phone three years ago yeah and so the idea of that was possible but I don't know how we're going to get there um, you know St Peter like you know I want to write a book that's been in my phone for 18 months two years and hopefully I'll be able to cross that off soon like yeah. there's there's a whole lot of things that I go back to like I set myself goals and I try to try to do them <laughs> as swiftly as I can um, not, a, not because I'm impatient just because I know that I don't know I don't know it's it's a it's not a selfish thing I just um, hmm, focused 
<laughs> yeah, it's good. I mean, it's a driver. Yeah. How many people out there? But I do think goals that... and don't actually do anything then about going about mm. achieving them. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people start diets every Monday. I'm yeah. probably one of those people. Yeah. <laughs> we, um, I just spoke at the um, Mad Mondays at uh, the Carriage Works and we talked about I, one of the, the topic of the evening was resilience. And so I spoke about resilience and what my interpretation of it was. And um, yeah, I think anybody that comes through any kind of adversity always puts their head down to a degree. Like, yeah. Yeah. Definitely not the first person. But um, I think in the profession that we're in and everything that maybe what I'm what I'm achieving is more noticed um, uh, than you know because somebody can have a lot of focus and, and just go about their life and stuff but I don't know I seem to be in a position at the moment where people are watching what we're doing and talking about it and it's being you know written about and we're podcasting about it and it's a really nice feeling it's nice hopefully to inspire people uh, to to a degree get on with it and enjoy what they're doing get into a profession that they really love and uh you know i i had those solo meals at restaurants because i wanted to eat at that restaurant desperately like i wanted to have that meal i wanted to eat the dish that i saw in the magazine and Mm. i wanted to you know all that sort of stuff so um just every like if you don't turn up to your job enjoying it then don't do it just go somewhere else (laughs) that's like yeah Mm. Nice. Good advice. Mm. Josh, we've got a few questions we like yeah. to finish each sure. podcast with, so we'll uh, wrap with these <coughs> if that's good for you. Uh, so, a favourite book that you've recently read or a podcast that you listen to? The Third Plate by Dan Barber. It's, uh, it's an extremely good book. <laughs> it touches on a lot of uh, yeah, interesting, very relevant um, topics in, you know, I suppose, the year that we're in around sustainability and and just, it's a really fascinating read. Dan Barber is somebody who uh, I draw a lot of inspiration from. Um, even like the uh, TED talk he did about the fish I fell in love with. And like, it's it, he's an amazing dude. And if you can watch anything by Dan Barber, watch it because it's inspiring. Great, firm recommendation. Um, <laughs> similarly, is there a favorite album or artist that you're listening to right now? Uh, I like Anderson Park at the moment. His the album's called Malibu. It's really good. Um, but if you go uh, Anderson Park on um, Spotify and just listen to his stuff, it's amazing. You He's got a-, got a really cool Instagram as well. It's oh, yeah? so heavily curated. Like it's like one photo looks terrible, but then you go out and you look at the profile. It's like oh right, they, it's one of those uh, ones. Yeah, right. <laughs> tactic. Have you got it playing in the restaurant at the moment? Or? No, it's a bit too like. Um, <laughs> Full on for St. Peter. <laughs> Stick to our Ray Charles and Sam Cook for now. <laughs> yes, fair enough. Yeah. Um, favorite venue that isn't your own? You've named a few. Uh, yeah, I would say one that I haven't mentioned that I like absolutely love is Mamafuku Siebo on the bar. Just such a happy place. Yeah, for many in the industry <laughs> Paul, for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Paul, Paul makes you definitely feel like you're the only one in the room when you're eating there. Yeah. So that that's an amazing place. And even a great meal at Lankin yesterday. So. Yeah, great. Yeah. yeah, Paul's been a great addition to the scene the last few yeah. years. Yeah. Um, and a favourite drink right now? Drink? Julie uh, uh, um, uh, seems to be drinking a lot of kombucha at the moment. And mm-hmm. I know that's like so last year or the year before that. But, you know... Um, I don't know whether it's a pregnancy thing and she wants to drink lots of kombucha, but I'm enjoying the kombucha at the moment. So I always like coconut water. It's good. Uh, great. And uh, last one, who in the industry are you most inspired by? Tough one for you, I reckon. No, no. Uh, 
Um, I always draw inspiration from, I suppose, the the more, not, I don't want to say senior, that's a horrible word to say, but from the older generation of cooks like um, Neil Perry um, and... Uh, no, I'd say, like, Neil, Neil in particular, and even Kylie Kwong, like, the way that they can educate their staff, that's something that I always see as being amazing, that they can, especially Neil, like, with the amount of venues that he has, to create that kind of blanket of excellence <laughs> wherever he goes. It's, mm. it's, uh, it's an inspiring thing to see. And also the fact that he'll pick up his phone and have a chat and kind of answer questions that he may have faced at a time years ago um, and I know that he'll have a good uh, a good answer for it um, and he's not too busy for a chat um, and even people like Ben Shuri you know has his own venue obviously Attica is brilliant um, but again for him to help me along the way and answer some questions about certain moments that St Peter's had that maybe are in line with what has happened at Attica in the past have really helped through certain hurdles that, that I've faced and um, you know uh, even you know Mitch Orr at Acme he's a great guy and like to be on a similar kind of like he has his own space I've got mm, my own space yeah. and he's had these issues I've had these and we can have a chat about them and like Dan Hong for always setting the bar just fucking stupidly high <laughs> and just <laughs> being being a gun at everything and um, and being a father of three children and me about to be a father of three children and, and still managing to juggle the ball so high above his head um so people like that are, are totally inspiring and Kylie for being very focused and uh, consistent with her beliefs and um, standards is amazing. Mm. Yeah, great. Amazing. Um, well, Josh, that's been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> um, best of luck um, um, <laughs> with, the, uh, with Julie in Thank the next few, few weeks. Um, Thank you very we'll much. We'll have to get her on this yeah. at some point, but maybe we'll give her some time after. Yeah, the... yeah. We'll get all the kids on as well. <laughs> <laughs> Chef, restaurateur, butcher, and author to be. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks again. Thanks, Mike. Thanks. Thank you. So, uh, Michael, what did you think about that conversation with Josh? I mean, there must not be a dull moment in that man's brain. No. He's, uh, he's bloody intelligent. Very passionate. He's whirring around at a rate of rate of knots. Here come all the sea jokes now, but uh, it was fascinating, I think, and I, I almost uh, think that we're lucky to have him in the industry at the stage where he where he is, and yeah. where the industry is at the moment. I think. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess sustainability gets talked about a lot, um, but it is one thing to talk about it. it is another thing entirely to go from 40 percent. Yield on a fish to near on 100 percent. Yeah, and then use that to fuel a conversation, a wider societal conversation. That's what I think. Mm. It's um, I just kept thinking about the, the passion topic, and he, he kind of finished on it in the end in terms of um, suggesting that if you're not in love with what you're doing, don't do it. And he was clearly very passionate about being a chef from the from the early doors. Like going and sitting in restaurants by yourself as a 15-year-old just so that you can eat as much food as possible in the hope that the chef will come out and see you um, is pretty phenomenal. And there's just there's very, very few people like that in any sector, I think, 
you know, right, we talk about a chef shortage all the time, like it's, it's super relevant. Um, but you're never going to fill an industry, any industry, with people with that level of passion. I think it would just—it's just what they want to do. It's who they are. Yeah, passion combined with this absolute humility. Like his, I think his response was, uh, "What makes it to what makes a great restaurant experience? It's cooking for your mum." I mean, like that's mm. how he sort of thinks about us as customers. Which is, yeah, is there any better way? Mm. Yeah, awesome. And uh, who have we got up next? Well, that's a good question. I think. Uh, Mr. Alistair Flower. Yeah, he'll uh, have Alistair on. Yeah. He'll be telling us about all the great things he's been doing up at Port Macquarie. Yeah, so look, I organised him. He, um, the guy that uh, I've never worked with, but um, been a competitor with back in the Keystone days. He was uh, very big on the marketing front across some pretty pretty high profile venues in Sydney for a long time. And um, he's gone up to Port Macquarie, opened up the Settlers, and is winning a few awards. He's the Publican of the Year currently. So we've gone from the Chef of the Year to the publican of the year, the hits just keep on coming. Yeah, maybe we'll be the podcasters of the year, Luke. I doubt it very highly, but we'll see how we go. But that's next week with Alistair, so looking forward to that. Great.